Welcome to Live Free Church. We're a church that's passionate about reaching people at all costs. Here you can find all our recent sermons. We are so glad that you joined us today. We want people to live free lives ultimately found in Jesus because we believe that free people, free people. Today we'll be looking at Acts chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 to 15, and then the end of Acts chapter 7 from verses 54 to 60. So I encourage you to have your your Bibles open or your Bible app open and have it ready to look at those uh, scriptures as we look at them this morning. Uh, Often we have problems. So I've entitled this sermon, Conflict Within and Conflict Without. Uh, And often we have problems that are kind of external. Uh, Could be what work-related issues or financial problems or health issues that are that are kind of outside of us and these can make us lose focus and uh, to become overly focused on the issues that we're trying to deal with and often it, we, we don't turn to God quite as quickly as, as we could. So there can be these outside conflicts and then in the same way uh, we can have internal issues that are also taking place. So things like depression, anxiety, fear, emotional pain, and these also can overwhelm our thinking. Um, uh, at Central Fellowship Baptist, we have shared a resource for you from Focus on the Family. And it speaks to some of these internal issues, particularly around anxiety. And so if you're looking for that, go to centralfellowship.ca and you'll find that resource. It's called an anxiety booklet from Focus on the Family. It's on our website. There's just some really good, helpful resources there. As we look at this text, We're going to see conflict from outside, and we're going to see conflict from uh, inside as well. The growth of the early church led to both these internal problems and external persecution. God used both of these to build his church, and the gates of hell, working both internally and externally, would not prevail against it. The persecution and opposition to the church had not stopped the work of God, in the spread of the good news. Satan's attempts to overcome the church by persecution had fallen flat, and then by corruption, as we looked at last week, had also fallen flat. Now he tries a new tack. So let's, uh, let's read Acts chapter 6. We're going to just read verses 1 to 7 to start with. So join with me as we read. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would, be, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Join with me as we pray. Father, as we dive into the scripture today, 
We just invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to lead us into understanding this word and not just understanding it in our head, but Father, also to help us understand it in our heart. And I know you have something for each person who's watching this, who's listening. And so, Father, I pray that their hearts would be open to receive from you what it is that you have for them today. For we pray this in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So the what we see here is Satan uses uh, the temptation of distraction. Uh, so we see that there's good things happening. The church is growing. The church is developing. And anytime good things are happening, often there's problems, you know, and they can be good problems, but they need to be dealt with well. So growth leads to issues, opportunities, I should say, can turn into, also can turn into problems. And we just need to be aware of that. Um, the oversight of uh, the Hellenistic Jews, not their, their um, widows not being cared for in the same way that the, the Hebraic Jews, I don't think that oversight was deliberate. It was just something that was taking place. So the, the idea of the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, this is, this, we need to clarify this. So the Hebraic Jews would have been those who were native of Palestine and spoke Aramaic. And they lived within their culture, and quite likely they would have gone to synagogue as Jews in their own, kind of in their own group, the Palestinian group that spoke that language. The, the, uh, the other group would have been those returning from the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. So the Hellenistic Jews are those who had come and settled in Palestine and spoke the language of, uh, spoke the Greek language. So there were likely two different synagogues that were coming together, now coming together to create one church. Now it could have been the house churches were very much settled in on um, these different languages, possibly, and also different cultures. They might have worshipped God in their own languages, which is pretty typical. We see that in our as people come and move to Canada uh, from different cultures and uh, they become believers, they, they often want to worship God in their heart language, and that's that's just completely understandable. Now, in verse 2, we see that the, the, the disciples, the apostles, I should say, uh, they, they are saying, hey, we need to stay focused on the ministry that God has given us to. So this temptation was to move, lean into this distraction and go, okay, I guess we need to now be looking after all these things. So they said, no, actually, we need to remember that our role here is to teach and to pray. Now, I'd like to just say right here, kind of at the top, that's sort of the role of the pastor. And, and in this day and age, it's almost like we've encouraged our pastors to become more like a CEO or the, uh, the administrator of the church to oversee all the different ministries, when really the critical role for the pastor is to be the one who is preaching, preparing the sermon, the teaching and preaching ministry of the church, and also to be in prayer for the church and to invite other people to join them in, in these ministries. So it's not to do it all alone. Uh, but I want us to think about that and remember that really God has called um, pastors and leaders of the church to teach, first of all, and to be those in prayer, just as the early apostles were. Now, it's interesting how they addressed this problem in verse 2. They said, you know, they gathered all the disciples together. So it wasn't just for these few men to decide. The others also joined in. There wasn't any hierarchy here. The apostle said, here, we have a solution, um, but we want you all to be part of the solution. And 
What I find most fascinating about that is when you and I, and I think it's the way that we've been created and made, is when you and I have some input into decisions that are being made, we tend to want to follow through on those decisions. When we're just sort of told what we're supposed to do, it's a little harder for us, I think maybe even that's part of our culture, where it's harder for us to engage just because we want some say in what's taking place. And so they invite everybody to be part of this decision. And they don't just say, so what do you think? They actually say, here's a solution. And the solution is choose seven men from among you. Now this might be something uh, interesting that as we look at this, it's actually something that would have happened in the synagogues. So they're taking some structural pieces from the synagogues and they would have had seven members, seven people, on a board for particular duties in a synagogue. So they're saying, well, you know, why don't we use this same idea to come up with a solution? And so they choose seven men. Now I want you to notice kind of what they're choosing or who they're choosing. So there's this positive solution of choosing people, and now notice who they're choosing to help serve the widows. It says, full of the spirit and wisdom. It's it's an interesting qualification. and. Paul, later on in his book to Timothy and Titus, unpacks what he means by full of the spirit and wisdom when he gives us the um, qualifications, uh, the character qualities of an elder, and then the character qualities also of a deacon. So they were serving, but they were supposed to be spirit-filled and wise. Now, I also want you to notice as we look further on, and we'll pick this up with Stephen right away, but we'll also see it with Philip, is that two of these that they choose that are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, so that's prior to being called to serve, they are actually evangelists. Uh, Notice here that as they're choosing these seven, all seven of them have Greek names. So it's like choose from among the Grecian people, the Hellenistic Jews, let's choose people who are then going to care for their own folks. They'll understand how to do that best. You'll also notice that as they choose them and and gather them and they call them to serve, the apostles start with laying on of the hands. They They lay their hands on them. It's a sign of God's blessing for them and a blessing of the community on these men. And then they pray over them. They pray this prayer of blessing over them. What a great way for us to courage and step into people who are leading is just to pray over them, to invite God to minister to them, to continue to fill them with his Holy Spirit. Now I want you to notice also in verse 7 that there's a very positive result of this internal issue. So they address this internal issue which could have become a distraction and it doesn't, but in a very positive way, it's a a God-honoring way that people keep on coming to Jesus. So they've dealt with this internal issue. And out of that, because the apostles could focus on the teaching, preaching, evangelism, they could focus on reaching out, we see that that ministry just begins to continue or begins to explode and grow. And it tells us in verse 7 that priests, a large number of the priests, came to faith in Christ as well. Um, we see that uh, in this text, we can see that the social work was not regarded as inferior to the work of the apostles. It is simply a question of calling. It's a recognition that God calls different women and men to different ministries, and they're all important. And so we see that in this, in this as they, these seven men begin to do their work, and the church just continues to grow and to, and to explode in growth. 
And so we see this, this is the way the church works together. When we all do our part, uh, and every part is important, uh, as, we, as we taught before, kind of the idea of the body, every part of the body is important. Notice that as the apostles continue to focus deeply on the ministry of the word, that the gospel spread. So when God is at work, neither humans nor demons can stand in God's way. As we sort of close out this section of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, I mean, this could be a sermon in itself, but I want you to think about these, these questions or this question. What potential distractions or what distractions do you have in your life that pull you away from God's best for you? It could be okay, it's not sin, it's not wrong, but maybe it's pulling you away from what is the best. So what distractions do you have in your life that could pull you away from what's best? And just to consider that, just to ponder that, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about that. Are there distractions? You see, the early church had potential distractions. The apostles could have got lost. They could have said, well, half of us will begin to do this ministry, and really they were taking away ministry from someone else. But rather, God, through his spirit and wisdom, showed them that, no, they needed to focus on this and not on other things. So what, are, what potential distractions might there be in your life that take you away from a focus on God? Now let's look at this next section. Now we're going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Uh, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit uh, the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This second piece is there's this temptation for power. Now, these people aren't within the church, but there was a temptation for them just to fight God. And we see that, that Stephen is an instrument to show them of who they're fighting against. They're not fighting against Stephen. They're fighting against God. So we see Stephen as a powerful servant in verses 8 to 10. It says he's full of God's grace and power, the gracious power of God. Campbell Morgan puts it this, he says, it's, it's this mix of sweetness and strength merged in one personality. Uh, it says that Stephen performed wonders and signs. This is, this is not now the apostles, but other believers were also given God's spirit to do these miracles and to show God's presence in their lives. Now the opposition to Stephen came from Greek-speaking Jews. It calls them freedmen. Now, who were they? They were Roman prisoners and their descendants who um, had later been granted their freedom. If you look at history, there's a, a considerable number of Jews had been taken prisoner by Pompey, a Roman general, and were taken back to Rome. 
and they were later released in Rome, and they would have slowly migrated back to Palestine, and so these were the freedmen, and it says where they came from, so they were from all over the place. You'll notice that Stephen in, um, in verse uh, 10, it says, but they couldn't stand against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Now, I want to point us back, because Jesus actually said to his disciples, and he says to us, I'm going to give you what you need when you come up against opposition. So in Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So this is the Spirit of God is being given to us. So when we come into places where we actually, there might be some opposition, I think the great, the first place to start is, God, how do I, what do I say? Help me to say the right thing. Uh, when we want to share the gospel with somebody, and we're just not sure how to begin, just start with a prayer, quietly in our minds. God, help me, give me the words to say. And, and this promise from Jesus is given to us. I'm going to give you the words to say. The Spirit of God will speak through you. Then this idea of wisdom. So Stephen was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And, and Jesus said a similar thing. In Luke chapter 21, verse 15, he says, For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And again, when we watch Stephen in this situation in Acts 6, we notice that he is, he is right in this place that Jesus has talked about. He's been given the Spirit of God to give him the words to say, and he's also been given wisdom so that people can't stand up against him. So it's frustrating those who are opposing him, and, uh, and we see that they are terribly frustrated. And so they start with a theological conversation, and then they move to just slander. They share what is untrue. They stir up the people. They stir up elders. They stir up the teachers. So they couldn't win clearly, cleanly, or clearly. And so they, they started now with a smear campaign against Stephen. They moved from a theological argument, as I said, to slander, and then, as we'll see, to violence. Nothing for the Jewish people was more sacred to them than the temple and the law. And so those are the two pieces that they leaned into. This is the problem. He's talking about the temple and the law and how that's going to take place. Now, Jesus had said that he would destroy the temple. This, And he said, this man-made temple and in three days build another not made by man. John, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus was referring to his body, his resurrection body, and also his spiritual body, that is the church. And you can find that in Mark chapter 14, verses 58. John also says uh, that Jesus said, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. The temple was where God lived. And so Jesus is saying, I am God. I am here. So Jesus also said around the law, he said that he came to complete the law, to fulfill the law. The customs that are mentioned were the oral traditions, which were giving the interpretation of the law. Jesus contradicted the, the scribal interpretations of Moses. Uh, so this attack would have been uh, seen also as an attack on the law because they would have seen these scribal uh, interpretations, so not just the law itself, but interpretations of the law. 
So Jesus said to us and to, and to his followers and to those around him, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In particular, he came to lay down his life for us to fulfill all the priesthood and the sacrificial requirements that are found in the law. And that's the gospel message, that Jesus came to die for our sins. So in the past, they would have given a sacrifice for their sin. An animal would have died, a dove or a lamb would have died for their sin. Jesus said, no, I've come so that this is the last uh, sacrifice that will need to be given. So Jesus is saying, I'm come to fulfill this sacrificial part of the law. Now, why do I say that? Because this is exactly what Stephen is teaching. He's teaching much the same as Jesus. And now they're charging him with blasphemy in much the same thing they did with Jesus. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 65, the high priest says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you heard the blasphemy. Well, okay, what is it that Jesus actually said? Well, if you go back a verse in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, it says, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is pointing forward now to the end of Acts chapter 7. We're going to see this in a moment. But Jesus says this to them at his trial. The response is, this is blasphemy. You're calling yourself the Son of Man. You're calling yourself God. He's referring back now to the, the, to the prophet Daniel talking about the Son of Man coming. And so Jesus is saying, I am that one. And so they're calling that blasphemy. Stephen is sharing the same thing. He's sharing with them the same thing that Jesus shared. And they're saying, now you are blaspheming. One of the things I want you to notice is at the end of, of this text, on verse 15, we see uh, this amazing affirmation from God. Stephen's face shone. It says like the face of an angel. Just like Moses was in the presence of God. His face was shining. And he was in the presence of God, in the midst of this uh, vitriolic attack on him. He is in the presence of God. John Stott says it this way, In this way, God was showing that both Moses' ministry of the law and Stephen's interpretation of it had his approval. So God was showing his approval of Stephen as he showed his approval of Moses. Now, we don't, we're not going to take the time today because it's a very long section. But if you, you have time this week, read through Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 53. Because Stephen unpacks the gospel at the end. But he, he starts the story with a Jewish story. He starts at Abraham, goes through Joseph to Moses, coming out of the wilderness. And he even in the end is quoting the prophets. Finally, at the very end of his speech to them, he calls them out as stiff-necked and resistant to God's work. So that's sort of how he ends. Now, you can imagine when he's already had opposition, it doesn't sound good and it doesn't go well. So let's look at Acts chapter 7, verses 54 uh, to 59. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So as Stephen finishes his message, as I said, he's sharing them what, what God has done, that you're not listening to God. There was this huge vitriolic response to Stephen's message, calling them hard-hearted. He had shared the gospel. And, and it can happen for us. When we share God's word with people, often there can be pushback. Now, we want to be careful on us not about how we're sharing the word of God, that we want to be those who share it well. Uh, but we, we know that sometimes the truth of God's word will just be rejected by individuals. John R. W. Stott says it this way, Change is painful to us all. So that's what was happening for these Jewish people. Change is painful to us all, especially when it affects our cherished buildings and customs. Yet true Christian radicalism is open to change. It knows that God has bound himself to his church, promising that he will never leave it, and to his word, promising that it will never pass away. But God's church means people, not buildings, and God's word means scripture, not traditions. So as we think about this, and these folks, they're, they're struggling with this temptation of power. They want to control what they have. They want to keep everything. I want to ask us a question. What temptation to use power to control our life do you and I face? We can use power in different ways. It could include things like money and manipulation when we, when we work with people. So just to consider this question. To look at our own hearts and say, are there things that I need to repent of, that I need to bring before God and say, God, I need you to show me the right way to, to help me to deal with these issues. Now, so there's this temptation for power that we see with these others, but now we see God's intervention. Now, that doesn't save Stephen's life, but God intervenes in this most powerful, in, interesting, and beautiful way. There's this heavenly revelation in verses 55 and 56. Stephen is given a vision of heaven. So as he's standing and all these men are, are screaming and yelling and unhappy with him, uh, he's given a vision of heaven and he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at God's right side. Exactly what Jesus had said to the chief priest. He's repeating it. He's saying, now I actually see it. Jesus says, this is where I am. Stephen's saying, I see Jesus exactly there. He's standing at God's right side. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 110.1. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there he is. God is, Jesus is at the right hand of God. And and Stephen is seeing this. And you can imagine, for Stephen, that would have just warmed his heart, would have, would have made him full of excitement and anticipation. The Messiah is being at God's right hand. Now, this Psalm 110.1 stresses power and position, but it also shows the acceptance uh, of God, of Jesus. So, and what is Jesus doing when he's at the right hand of God, like Jesus is there right this moment for you and I. What's he doing? He's interceding for us. 
He's a mediator on our behalf. Paul writes it in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, so this refers back to what Jesus said in Matthew 26. He said that this is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be I'm at the right hand of the Father. And, in, and Paul also writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, he says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So when we fall away, Jesus is interceding on our behalf, as inviting us to come back to God, to, to move forward in, in repentance and knowing that God accepts us. So there's, as he says, there's no one is condemning us. We're rather, we turn to Jesus, who is the one who is mediating on our behalf. Now, out of this, so Stephen is seeing this vision. He's sharing it with these very angry people. Well, there is the, the anger level just goes up to high intensity. There is the heat, the anger, the rage. They actually ignore their own law. They're so uh, upset, and they carry Stephen out of the city. They're, they're, they're gnashing their teeth. They're grinding their teeth in rage. There is just this spontaneous act of mob violence that takes place. And uh, as they drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him to death, they're raging. And in the midst of their rage, Stephen is calm, and he's focused on Jesus. And it says that Stephen prayed to Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that's, uh, that's exactly what Jesus prayed when he hung on the cross. God, receive my spirit. I give you my spirit. And then, like Jesus, he prays for his enemies that God would not hold this sin against them. And then he falls asleep. He dies. Now, you may say, well, that's not a very nice ending to a story. How did God intervene? You know what? God showed Stephen where he was going. I think Jesus was standing. It says he sits at the right hand. He was standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming Stephen into his presence. So Stephen entered into the presence of God. Even though he died physically, spiritually, he was more alive than ever, and he just walked with great joy into the presence of God. He was the first Christian martyr. You know, this word martyr is a Greek word. It comes from the word martas, which actually means witness. So Stephen was a witness for Jesus, and he was the first one to die for the sake of Jesus. And like all martyrs, Stephen is this witness to his Lord, even to his death. There have been Christian martyrs all through history. Let me just point out two for us today. William Tyndale most known for his translation of the Bible into English, uh, was a reformer who stood against many teachings of the Catholic Church and who opposed King Henry VIII's divorce, which was one of the major issues in the Reformation. Tyndale's English translation of the Bible was the first to draw significantly from the original languages. We know that Tyndale was choked to death while tied to the stake, and then his dead body was burned. The date that uh, the church uses to commemorate his martyrdom is October the 6th, 1536. So that's a historical martyr, must like Stephen. I want to point to one that's a bit more recent. In 2010, there was a group of eight Christ uh, uh, Egyptian Christians were killed. It's called the Nag Hammadi Massacre. 
On January the 7th, 2010, uh, they left their church after celebrating a Christmas Mass, and the motive behind the massacre is somewhat disputed, but it was carried out by militant Islamic believers. It may have been done in retaliation for an alleged crime against a Muslim girl by a Christian man. Even if that was the reason, the retaliation was not targeted at the man who committed the crime, but at Christians because of their association through religion. And so they died as a witness for their faith in Jesus Christ. As we close, again, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. As we see this working of God in Stephen's life, where do you see, uh, where do you see God at work? How is God speaking to you in this season? When you read the scripture, does God speak to you? Does he tell you things? Does he affirm things that maybe you've already known? Um, God also speaks through dreams and visions. Now, that may not happen a lot, but, it, the, you know, the Old Testament, the prophets said there will be dreams and visions in the future. Jesus, or Stephen, saw Jesus at the right hand of God, saw this vision of God. And I want to tell you that this doesn't happen to me often, but it happened to me probably about a month and a half ago where I had a very vivid dream. Now, I do dream, but this one was unique in that the colors were vivid. And it was a dream where my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who was known as a prayer warrior, came to me in a dream, and she didn't say anything, but her arms were open. She, it was a vivid, she was wearing a vivid green um, blouse, shirt, top of some kind, and she, she just puts her arms around me and gives me a big hug. And to me, that was just like, thank you. Thank you, Grandma. Because you're showing you, you're accepting me. You're loving me. And she always did. Uh, I had great, a great relationship with her. And I just remember her being this prayer warrior. And so it's just reminding me, Reg, you need to be in prayer. You need to be that prayer warrior. You need to lean into that because God loves me. As we close, I want to remind you that God desires relationship with us. We can come to him because he is ready to meet us at any time. As we think of this text, remember that, that God is doing great things, that he's working in our hearts, that he's speaking to us. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we, as we pray together today, as we close this teaching time, we thank you that you are the one who leads us, who, who guides us. Thank you that you, we can be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that when opposition comes, that you are there with us. Thank you that every single day you want to meet with us. Lord, I pray for all of us, for myself included, just uh, I pray that you would help us to see where there's distractions that actually take us away from the things that you have for us. Help us to know the, the places also where, where we may turn to, to control things with our power or our money or manipulation, and where that isn't what you want us to do. You want us actually to turn to you in that time. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us through this text, through these words, through your Holy Spirit. For we pray this in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Please subscribe to our podcast. Share with your friends. We would love for you to join our movement. All you have to do is go to livefree.church to join us.